Amen. You may be seated. Concern with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 18 this morning as we continue our series on this book. Well, it wasn't always um, controversial. A lot of things are controversial now that weren't always controversial. But it wasn't always controversial to suggest that the presence of police officers reduces crime. Numerous studies confirm this truth. But after the death of George Floyd last year, when defund the police became the primary goal of the Black Lives Matter platform, I was shocked at how readily several friends of mine were coming to the defense of the concept. And it was depressing then to see several, many major cities with high rates of crime reducing the budget of their law enforcement. And of course, the results of this insanity, as everyone should have anticipated, was an increase in violent crime dramatic increase. The U.S. has experienced its largest increase in homicide rates in history last year. So what does this have to do with Philippians? Well, even, even Paul acknowledges the tendency for people to obey when authorities are present. He urges his readers for the second time here, as he did in Philippians 1.27, and he'll do again the beginning of this passage in verse 12. Right? He's saying, uh, whether I am present or am absent, right? not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, right? he's urging them here to practice obedience in his absence even more than they did when he was present. Why? Why would he have to urge that? Well, because disobedience increases without accountability. He'll explain that the Christian should always obey, regardless of whether he's there or not. But he qualifies that in several ways, and that's really the subject here of this section. Paul will show, by necessary implication, that obedience offered with eager self-dependency Right, sort of an autonomous, I can do this on my own, I, I've got this, in a legalistic fashion. Right? Obedience that's offered with that eager self-dependency or with a grumbling reluctance, a complaining spirit. Those result in a shame-filled and a joyless isolation. And so he's encouraging in this section and exhorting his readers to overcome their pride, to overcome their reluctance, to obey God, and then to enjoy and rejoice in community. So remember, this is a section that, uh, that began in 127 that he now brings up again that with the same wording in 212. He's acknowledging here that he's bringing that section on unity to a close here. He's, he's calling and exhorting the church to experience and enjoy the benefits of unity, which he exemplified as needing humility, right? that we need to come to this community with humility, placing the needs of others above our own, and then to enjoy that unity here. 
So this is the, the conclusion to this section. We want to keep that in mind as we look to the Lord for his help in understanding it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We do thank you that you have given us this letter to reflect upon and to uh, encourage us and to build us up as a body, as those who are committed to one another. Lord, we need each other, and Lord, we want to enjoy that unity, primarily because we are focused upon uh, the gospel that has reconciled us to you. And because we have been reconciled to you, we are in unity with one another. That doesn't mean we don't experience conflict. We recognize that. But it does mean that we strive for loving one another, encouraging one another, and building one another up. So, Lord, speak to us. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Give us the comfort of the gospel from this passage. We might rightly think about you and ourselves. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Amen. This is God's holy word. If you're following along in your outline, the first point I want us to consider is from verses 12 through 13, the source of Christian obedience, the source of Christian obedience. Here, Paul exhorts them to obey, whether he's present or absent, recognizing, verse 13, that God is the source of their strength. Paul's not accusing the Philippians here of disobedience. Uh, he has repeatedly rejoiced with them from the beginning of this letter, rejoicing in the fruit of God's work among them. Right, rather than rebuke, he spurs them on to further good deeds in this section. He's, he's saying that obedience especially counts when no one is there to enforce it. In that case, the work of God's Spirit is all the more evident among you. And so it's the believer's responsibility to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul's not talking about working for our salvation. He's not suggesting that we are saved by works, but that our sanctification, our ongoing salvation, requires work. And so what does fear and trembling have to do with obedience? 
those uncomfortable with this language attempt to read it in an almost unrecognizable fashion. And they interpret verse 13 as if it essentially cancels out verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it's God at work in you. Therefore, they focus on God doing the work in you, and so the working out your own salvation becomes just to simply let go and let God. That's not what Paul's saying. And it's, it's unhelpful, I, I think, as well, to immediately reinterpret fear and trembling as reverence and awe. Now, there is a logical correlation between the two, but I think it requires an explanation. Because fear and trembling is the correct translation. It, it, it means exactly what it sounds like. Its meaning does not change when it's applied to believers. It's the same word used by the psalmist who encourages the kings of the earth in Psalm 2, 11 through 12, to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Notice there, the same language is referred to both believers and unbelievers there. Right? He's talking about God's wrath coming upon those whom he's angry with, but then also a blessing for all who take refuge in him. But the exhortation to serve the Lord with fear and to rejoice with trembling is applicable to all. And so we might find it difficult to grasp how you can rejoice with trembling, but Paul here clearly has put them together. We see there in verse 12 his reference to fear and trembling, and then in 17 through 18 he talks about rejoicing. It's in the same uh, broader context of the passage. So what I want to say is that this acknowledges a deep sense of respect for the Lord's authority to discipline his children. The opposite of this, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, the opposite of that would be work out your own salvation with an unwavering confidence. Well, fear then reveals a dependence upon God. Trembling. Think about what that does. You're, you're shaking. It oftentimes uses that word to speak of an earthquake. The earth trembles. The people on, uh, that felt the trembling of Mount Sinai themselves trembled in fear of God. So trembling causes us to, to reach out for something to stabilize us. So as a loving father, God has the authority to discipline, but he delights in obedience. And as a true child, we then seek to please him rather than provoke him. There's a a correlation here between Paul's call for humility earlier in the chapter and his call for fear and trembling here. Both commend a submissive spirit before a perfectly holy and sovereign Lord. And that's not to suggest that we prepare our hearts for worship with some dreadful panic. Like as we, if we take some time to prepare our hearts for worship, that you should just be shaking in your boots, afraid of even acknowledging a holy God. That's not what we're saying here. This is not a fear that drives us away from God or, or makes us 
afraid to enter into his presence, but it's a fear that draws us closer to him, that recognizes our need and our dependence upon him, and that shudders to think about not coming into his presence. I like how Alec Matir puts it. Actually, no, this is, this is Walter Hansen. He says, fear and trembling united with trust and love in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father inspire us to work out our salvation. Fear and trembling united with trust and love in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father inspire us to work out our salvation. So, to summarize, Paul is not calling for a weak spirit, but a sincere sense of our utter dependence upon God every time we come into his presence. An excellent summary of these verses is found in the Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 16, section 3. It says, The believer's ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. And that they may be enabled thereunto, besides the graces they have already received, there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them, to will and to do of his good pleasure. You hear the same language here from Philippians. Yet are they not hereupon to grow negligent as if they were not bound to perform any duty unless upon a special motion of the Spirit. But they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. It's a safeguard here that, this, that comes directly from this passage. The idea that God is at work in you does not give you the response of saying, well, then I'm just going to wait until he moves me to do something. You, you know the word of God. You know what you've com been commanded to do, and so you are to work that out diligently, in dependence upon him. Scripture exhorts us to make progress in our salvation. Don't let up in your efforts to grow. Employ all of your energies to obey, knowing that you are fully dependent upon God in order to do so. He grants not only the desire, but also the ability to obey, according to verse 13. And this is especially important to remember when you're going through or feeling helpless and hopeless about your circumstances. When it appears nothing you say or do will alleviate your frustrations, keep at it. Allow your failures to encourage even more effort, but don't lose sight of who empowers that effort. The promise that God is at work in you is what motivates you to strive all the more. In a similar way, Peter he, be, he begins with the divine power that was granted in, in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. He begins that letter with this divine power that has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, you've been enabled, you've been empowered by God. And then he says, for this very reason, 
make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and so on. And he gives a, a list of things to make every effort in. These are not contradictory concepts. The same Heavenly Father who loved us has promised to love us to eternity. The same Christ who redeemed us will sustain us until he returns. And the same Spirit who justified us will also sanctify and glorify us. In light of these promises, we ought to diligently stir up the grace of God that is in us. And so Paul transitions from the source of Christian obedience in verses 14 through 16 to talk about the goal of Christian obedience, the goal of Christian obedience, which is a blamelessness. Their obedience, he says, should be offered without complaint so that they might be blameless among a perverted generation, a crooked and twisted generation. Moses condemned the unbelieving Israelites who dealt corruptly with God. And he said this in Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, they, these, un these unbelieving Israelites, are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. In the Septuagint, or the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's the same language that Paul uses here in Philippians 2. And so Paul's allusion to the grumbling Israelites points to obedience as the fruit of God's children. He connects the covenant community in the Old Testament with the church in the New Testament. The church becomes the recipients of God's covenant promises, and those who place their faith in Christ are now the true Israel of God, according to Galatians 6.16. And he'll acknowledge this here in Philippians Later on in chapter 3, verse 3, for we are the circumcision. He's writing to Gentile believers, and he's saying, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit. Let me make that very clear to you. We are the circumcision, even though most of you aren't circumcised. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so Christians shine their light in a world darkened by sin when they hold fast to the word of life. Their steadfast faith shines a light upon a perverse generation that will inevitably involve the exposing of lies and the condemning of sin. It will also occasionally result in conversion and the transformation of sinners, and we can rejoice with them. And so the perseverance of believers in Philippi, according to verse 16, will confirm on the day of Christ that Paul's ministry among them was not in vain. The fact that they persevered to the end, he will, be, he will stand proud of that work on the day. And again, that's not a boastful pride. It's an acknowledgment that God has used him effectively in the work that was done in Philippi. So Paul's instruction seems to imply that, that some of the Philippian believers were grumbling over the challenges that they were facing amid a corrupt people. Why else would he use this language? There's, there's some implication here that there was some grumbling taking place. 
Maybe, like the wandering Israelites, they had, they had blamed their spiritual oversight for leading them out into a hostile environment. And so Paul wants them to understand that the reluctance that they express in their obedience dims their contrast with a wicked culture. Maybe as, as parents, you're fond of telling your children this, right? You can, you can do this happy or sad. But you're going to do it, right? And if you do it, if you do it sad, it actually takes away from the obedience, right? It, it, it dims. What Paul's saying here is that when you express that reluctance, you complain about it, you dim the contrast with a wicked culture. You begin to look like them to some degree. And so put more simply, complaints stain obedience. Now, we can take that too far to say we should never ever complain about actual wrongs and injustices. We can never raise concerns. That's not what's happening here, but he's saying this grumbling spirit, this, this spirit that's always complaining about actually doing God's will and obeying, complaining about our circumstances, complaining about how hard it is, always being frustrated with where we are, what we're up against, that actually stains our obedience. And so what's the alternative? It's pretty simple. Do all things without grumbling or disputing holding fast to the word of life. That's the instruction he gives there in verses 14 through 16. Do everything without grumbling or disputing, holding fast to the word of life. Instead of complaining about your calling or circumstances, ground yourselves in gratitude for the life-sustaining word of the gospel. And so this instruction is easy to receive when life is going well. Right? This, the encouragement provided by the gospel confirms that everyone is blessed by the light of your countenance. Everyone's happy. But it's precisely in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation that our steadfast and grateful obedience is threatened. Paul would write to the church in Colossae, verses, or chapter 1, 21 through 22, something similar. He says, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, you were with the culture. You were alienated, you were hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds, has now been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Or sorry, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Speaking of Christ. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Christ is at work in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So will the truth of this gospel sustain you even when the world hates you? Now the world will hate you for holding fast in your convictions when it's not in accord with their worldview. Many of you have already experienced that. Is Christ's declaration that you've been justified, reconciled, and accepted in him 
enough to uphold you when progressive leaders call you bigots or Neanderthals for daring to question their twisted worldview. Holding fast to the word of life implies that you will face discouraging opposition. You will be called names. Your faith will come under attack both inside and outside the church. Will you grumble and complain about it? Will you lack the fortitude to endure the mockery? You need to hear that it is in the midst of those trials that the light of Christ shines most brightly through your faithfulness. That you need to know that God is rejoicing over you even as the secular world is mocking you. That's exactly what we find happening to the covenant community as they suffer the reproach of the nations in Zephaniah. God promises to deal with their oppressors, even converting their shame to praise among the nations. But he tells the covenant community in Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And so hold fast to his word of life. And let your obedience be without complaint, resting in his approval of you, his acceptance of you. And after considering the the source and the goal of Christian obedience, Paul concludes with the result of Christian obedience here in verses 17 through 18. And this, this may be the simplest section, and yet the most profound in terms of our need today. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The, the Greek verb translated pour out as a drink offering is, is in the present tense. It's the idea that it's, he's now being poured out. He's in the process of being poured out as an offering. And so it seems to refer to Paul's current suffering rather than his expectation of a future execution. He does, he does use the same imagery, though, in, in his letter to Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, 6, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Well, there, very clearly, he's talking about his death. The time of my departure has come. He doesn't speak of his departure here in Philippi. And in fact, he hints several times that he doesn't think it's the end of his ministry. But some have concluded that Paul is referring to the possibility of his execution at this point. That even if he dies, he will, con- he will count the time that he spent among the Philippians as a, a sacrificial offering for their faith. So the language here of being a drink offering, being poured out as a drink offering, comes from, obviously, Old Testament imagery. Numbers 28, verse 7, speaks of a drink offering. It's really the second 
kind of stage of a larger sacrificial offering, animal bloodshed. And then the, the drink offering is poured out uh, in honor, right? Usually a, a wine or some strong drink. But Paul doesn't only use sacrificial imagery to speak of death. Um, he, he speaks in you know, Romans uh, 12, 1 and 2, of, of being a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Offering our, our spiritual worship is a living sacrifice. And so whether or not he's speaking of a potential martyrdom that he, he could face or his own ministry, he's, he's talking about leaving himself exhausted for the sake of the Philippians, for their offering of faith, giving it all to the covenant community. And then he says that he will rejoice, that he is rejoicing with them. In fact, the translation here in the ESV says glad. It's, it's actually rejoice over and over again. It's... it's um, He's saying, even, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I rejoice and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should rejoice and rejoice with me. He's talking about the joy that comes from belonging to a covenant community, united in Christ. And he exhorts them to experience that same joy. Paul shows that Christian joy is connected to sacrificial service. He's following in the steps of Christ that we read in chapter 2, 5 through 11. The reward for his humility is rejoicing with those he is being poured out for. And so despite Paul's suffering, he knows that God is the one sustaining him. Even though he's in chains, he rejoices with them because he knows that his leadership labor complements their sacrificial obedience. He doesn't wallow in self-pity or grumble about the injustices he has routinely endured. Now think about this in our context today. Could you imagine if Paul were writing to the church in America and Paul doesn't have enough bitter animosity toward his oppressors to fit in with woke Christianity. He is far too content in his circumstances to incite a riot over his mistreatment. He doesn't segment out his audience based upon a number of intersections of their oppression. He doesn't target those who shared the ethnicity of the dominant culture and condemn their complicity for the injustices that he suffered. He doesn't challenge dear white Christians to empathize with his plight. And so in an age where silence is perceived as complicity, the letters of the Apostle Paul would certainly be up for cancellation. However, had he written like a number of popular authors today, he would have stoked the flames of a shame-filled, bitter, and divided religion. Christianity would have self-destructed under the leadership of woke apostles. 
And so we can thank God that the Apostle Paul was nothing like that. What did he do instead? It's remarkably simple. He rejoiced and he invited all Philippian believers to rejoice with him without distinction. That's the hope we find in the gospel. There is no distinction among us. You're a believer or you're not. You're a saint or you ain't. It's the only hope that's worth preserving. It's the only hope that's worth persevering to achieve, right? You can rejoice with diverse brothers and sisters because despite your cultural differences, which will always be among us, despite those you're united in Christ. And so it's the blood of Christ that has brought all of us near. He has granted all of us access in one spirit to the Father. We are no longer strangers, but fellow members of the household of God. In Christ, we are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's what he writes to the Ephesians in chapter 2. And so it's because of what Christ has done to redeem us and reconcile us to himself that we can rejoice together in unity. Even if we are suffering under persecution, we are able to rejoice together. Even though Paul was separated from the Philippians, because of his chains, he was united to them in the work of the gospel. And the result was exceeding joy for everyone who participated. And so let's ask the Lord to do that same work in our midst for his glory. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for... Paul's instruction here to the church in Philippi, which, which always relates to our situation as well. It is your spirit that makes application in every generation. Your word is living and active. It brings rebuke and conviction of sin. Points out our weaknesses and the own, our own sin, and causes us to turn to you in repentance and faith by your Spirit, Lord. You are at work in and through your word to equip the saints. And Lord, we respond with gratitude for the opportunity to participate. Forgive us for, for grumbling. Forgive us for thinking that we can can go out with self-confidence, self-assurance, never fear and trembling. Lord, we, we go recognizing your sovereign authority, your power to discipline. In fact, in love, you do discipline us. You rebuke us and you correct us. And you bring us to repentance where we would grieve and we would mourn and we would hate our sin. And that we would apprehend the mercy of your mercy that's held out to us in Christ. So that we would turn away from our sin and turn to you. And rest 
in Christ and his obedience. Lord, we want to do that, and then we want to respond in the enabling power of the Spirit to work out our own salvation with an ongoing sense of fear and trembling, not a fear that drives us away from you, but a fear that brings us to our knees before you in recognition of your perfection, your holiness, your majesty. that we would humble ourselves before you in dependence upon you. Lord, be at work in our hearts. Give us opportunities to express boldly the truth of the gospel, even in the face of hostility, recognizing that that is going to happen in this world. It's inevitable but also knowing that you will be at work in and through the proclamation of your gospel to change hearts, to transform sinners, to build your church so that the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Or even in the face of our own trials and struggles, we pray that we would not grumble and complain about this calling that you've given us, but that we would be grateful for the work that you're doing in, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And help us to respond even now, honoring and glorifying you. And as we participate in the sacrament, may it remind us of the unity we have, not only with you, but with one another in this community of faith, the body of Christ. And may we grow in our dependence upon you and be strengthened for that work. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand. Our psalm of response is Psalm 2b. Why do the heathen nations rage? Psalm 2b.